Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Third Down Gamble, the CFL betting podcast. I'm your host, Kyle McMahon, and it's great to be back after a one-week hiatus. Perhaps it was a good thing I didn't spread my opinions to the listeners last week, as it was not a particularly profitable week for myself or most others with the way things all shook out. Lots to cover this week, but before we get going, I'll remind you that if you wish to share any of your comments, feedback, or questions, hit me up on Twitter at kdrive88, that's K-D-R-I-V-E-88, or visit firstlinepicks.com. Programming note here, with Thursday Night Football now done for the season, I plan on releasing these podcasts on Thursdays now instead of Wednesdays, as they have been up until now. Wednesday tends to be a pretty active news day in the CFL, especially when it comes to injury news and roster moves, so moving to a Thursday release day for the pod should allow for a little more accuracy in that regard. So we've now come upon the halfway point of the CFL season, but before we get into all the lines and totals for Week 11, we'll take a look back at the recent action, and what better place to start than the Saturday night thriller that Montreal and Calgary provided us. Calgary had been expecting Bo Levi Mitchell to be back under center for this game, to the point that it was pretty much assumed he'd be be starting this one going all the way back to the previous week. So it was quite a surprise to hear that not only was he not going to suit up for this game, but he was in fact heading back to the six-game injured list, and I think that kind of set the mood leading up to kickoff. It was a guessing game as to who was getting the nod at quarterback for the Alouettes as well, with Vernon Adams not declared the starter until late in the week. It was no secret that their fortunes hinged largely on whether or not Adams could play, so not a big surprise that some early money came in on Calgary when they opened at minus five and a half. This ended up moving out to 7.5 after Bo Levi was ruled out, but saw some pushback to under a touchdown just before kickoff when Adams was confirmed to be playing. All three of those numbers hung in the balance at various points throughout the fourth quarter and overtime, so definitely a sweat for everyone involved. Now to be clear, this game actually plotted along at a fairly pedestrian pace for 45 minutes, with the Alouettes taking a 17-14 lead into the final quarter. I think this game had more or less gone according to plan up to that point. Both teams were looking competent, if not great, in most areas of the field. The difference up to that point was probably uh, Montreal hitting on a couple of big explosive plays uh, while preventing the Stampeders from doing the same. But that flipped in a big hurry early in the fourth quarter with Nick Arbuckle hitting two consecutive touchdown passes for a combined 125 yards and it looked like that was going to be enough. I thought Kahari Jones made a pretty obvious mistake failing to call a timeout before Calgary punted with around two minutes left, which would have saved the Alouettes an important 20 seconds. And the urgency didn't really seem to be there with a couple of passes less than 10 yards to start the drive with time well under two minutes, most of the field in front of them in a two-score deficit. But all of a sudden that Calgary defense just seemed to wilt on consecutive plays. They, they took a roughing call and 60 yards on two plays later, it's a three-point deficit with 38 seconds left. Montreal pulls off the onside kick and again the Calgary defense can't make a play and we're off to overtime with the Owls eventually prevailing after Eric Rogers was what appeared to be literal millimeters away from tying the game and giving Calgary a two-point attempt for the win. I would say this game has entered Adams' name into legitimate MVP conversations as it just further emphasized that he's the key to any offensive success Montreal is going to have. The Owls graded out at a 56% success rate through the air with four explosives of over 20 yards and another 13 chunk plays of 10 or more. 
And that came against a defense that was averaging less than 10 of those plays against per game and had held Saskatchewan, Edmonton, and Hamilton offenses under 50% at various points this season. Under Antonio Pipkin and Matthew Schiltz, the previous game and a half, or game and a quarter, I guess, since the CFL pulled the rug on them against Saskatchewan, they'd be operating at a 35% clip through the air, and some of that was against a battered Ottawa defense. They were missing William Stanback in this game as well, and they didn't run Jeremiah Johnson a ton, but they kept him involved even when they were trailing, and he was reasonably successful in a relief effort. I think what probably gets lost in the story of this game was how well Nick Arbuckle continues to play, and even if Bo Levi comes back healthy in a few weeks and takes him the rest of the way, there's no question now that Arbuckle's stamp will be firmly on this season. Another game where you'd stop short of saying he lit things up, but he made plays when he needed to, he didn't make mistakes, and he did it with pretty average contributions from the run game. Obviously, there's not going to be any quarterback controversy here. This is Bo's team, but I do wonder how the Stamps might approach things if we got to, say, mid-October and Bo still hadn't played. It's always concerning when a guy has a setback that lands him back on the six-game injured list after he'd been activated, and it wouldn't entirely shock me if this turns into something that really derails his whole season more than it already has. So Montreal picks up the huge win here, and they grab a pretty firm hold on second place in the East. That's because the Ottawa Red Blacks continued their struggles this week, falling to 3-6 and six after being dealt a 21-7 loss by Hamilton, in a game where that score probably flattered them. This was yet another tough day at the office for Dominic Davis and the offense, who are now averaging less than 10 points per game since their third game of the season. I didn't think Davis played all that poorly on an individual basis, at least not as bad as you'd suspect in a game where he led all of two successful field goal drives. But Ottawa was done in largely by questionable play calling, an ineffective run game with Moses Madu coming back in for the injured John Crockett, and another game where too many catchable balls were hitting the turf. Ottawa really can't catch a break on the injury front, and as bad luck would have it, the two guys most likely to find the end zone both get injured and weren't available for this one, and I'm speaking of the aforementioned Crockett and return man Devontae Dedman. Losing Crockett killed any explosiveness the run game was going to have, and he was going to be their best bet going up against a Hamilton front set that has been really hot and cold against the run this year, and had been run over by John White the previous week. As I've said this year, I, I don't think Madu has the talent to be a long-term solution as an every-down back, but I still don't really understand why Ottawa completely avoided the run game in the first half of this ball game. I'm not sure what to make of Winston October at this point. He, he's showing flashes of unpredictability and smart situational calls, and then you get games like this where, where you convert four first downs in the entire game up until a garbage-time drive. To clarify that stat, that's four first downs achieved on first down throughout the game, not uh, not just four total for the entire game. But you know, when you're when you're almost never picking up a first down on first down, uh, you know, eventually mistakes are going to be made on all those second down plays, and, and defense is going to get the better of you. And that's what happened here. Um, we'll discuss uh, Mr. October a little uh, in a little more detail later on in the show, as he has now been removed from play calling duties. Uh, Joe Pow Pow is going to be taking that job over for the Ottawa Red Blacks uh, for the time being. But as bad as it went, though, this this could have been a one-score game inside the three-minute warning, which, with Ottawa knocking on the door with a reasonable amount of time left. Um, you know, but again, the, the play calling there left much to be desired. Uh, not entirely different than the three shots they failed to cash in at the Edmonton 10-yard line two weeks ago. 
I've always found it pretty questionable to take a shot at the end zone on first and ten when, when you know you're in a known three-down situation. Even a four- or five-yard pickup on first down opens up the entire playbook on, on second down in those situations. So, so yeah, I've never been a fan of going for it all on, on the first crack when you've got three plays at your disposal. I will say Ottawa's defense hung in pretty well considering it was another game of lopsided possession that had them on the field for 35 minutes, which has pretty much become standard. They kept the game within reach with timely turnovers in the end zone and eventually graded out at 49%, which isn't bad at all considering the fatigue factor that comes into play by the fourth quarter when, when your offense can't stay on the field. Dane Evans had another game where I'd, I'd say he was adequate. Uh, two picks tossed needlessly that took points off the board puts puts a blemish on it, but all things considered, I think the Tiger Cats are, are probably getting what they bargained for out of Evans, which has been a guy who appears in control out there and gives them a chance to win. In a similar vein to the way Ottawa operated, I was left somewhat confused by Hamilton's insistence on passing on nearly every down for, for a large part of the second half of this game, despite the effectiveness of Cameron Marshall along the ground earlier on. They went back to him later in the game and mixed in Braylon Addison as a runner at times as well. Anthony Coombs saw some touches and, and eventually that enabled them to grind things out at the end. Marshall isn't quite Sean Thomas Erlington, but he's looked the best between himself, Coombs, and Malik Irons, and I would expect he'll, he'll be the primary back going forward. This was another game where the market tended to be against the Tiger Cats at the opening number, which is now the fourth game in a row where that has occurred. Evans hasn't quite had that game that wins everybody's trust yet, which is, is maybe a factor in that, and Ottawa, by hook and by crook, has managed to cover three straight as underdogs, so we actually saw Hamilton as low as two-point favorites at kickoff after opening at minus four. Moving along, we also had the Edmonton Eskimos defeat the Toronto Argonauts 41-26 in what turned into a higher-scoring game than I think most of us would have anticipated. The Edmonton defense is still grading out at number one in the league, but we have now seen back-to-back -back games where their opponents were able to consistently pick up decent chunks of yardage against them. The defensive line continued to bulldoze through an overmatched Argonauts offensive line, but McLeod Bethel-Thompson was able to get the ball away quick enough to burn them on a few plays. Overall, it's tough to complain about putting up 26 points against a defense that hadn't given up more than 20 since the early weeks of the season. Edmonton was willing to play the boomer bust game on first down, and the Argonauts actually exploited this as well as anyone has all season, with 11 plays of 10 or more yards on first down. They had some issues converting in the red zone, but at the end of the day, 26 points against that defensive unit has to be scored as a win, I would say, and really the the defense is what let Toronto down in this one. The lack of playmakers on the defensive side for Toronto was apparent on a lot of second down plays, which Trevor Harris and Greg Ellingson seemed to be converting at will for most of the night. The Argonauts did a reasonable enough job on first down, keeping Edmonton right around their seasonal average in terms of efficiency, but they couldn't get a stop on second down to save their lives in the first half of this football game especially, and, and the Eskimos finished this one off with a 70% success rate on second down, and that will win a football game almost every time. I don't think the scheming was all that bad on Toronto's part. Most of those conversions were, were a case of the receiver having half a step on the defender, and, and this... Much maligned Toronto secondary is once again proving to be a point of significant concern. Edmonton's offensive line had another strong game protecting Harris, so lack of pressure was also a factor here, but a couple of guys in this secondary had to come up with a play at some point to get themselves off the field, and that just didn't happen at any point in the game, really. 
And for amusement's sake, this was another game that essentially ended with a Corey Chamberlain special as he decided to punt the ball away down two touchdowns with two and a half minutes left. And of course, Toronto never did get the ball back at all. I liked the hire initially, not impressed with the results when it comes to Coach Chamberlain, and by the sounds of it, he might be on some pretty thin ice there with Jim Pop as GM, a man who's never been shy about swinging the axe, but I'll touch on that in the developing James Wilder saga a little more when, when we have a look at this week's upcoming game. To complete our backtrack through last week, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers cruised to victory over the moribund BC Lions, but lost starting quarterback Matt Nichols in the process. The Lions were big underdogs in this game, not surprisingly, though they did comfortably cover double digits the previous week in Hamilton, in a game they should certainly have won outright, so it wasn't surprising to me to see the market back them at just short of two touchdowns, and, and this number did dip as low as 10 at one point. Winnipeg ends up with the 16-point win to, to cover any and all numbers, but this was another case of the Lions largely being the architects of their own demise in the second half of a football game that they even briefly led. The BC defense had a reasonably decent effort in this one, I thought. Uh, they forced some timely turnovers. Uh, it was special teams in the offense that were the big letdown here. BC was electing to kick the ball to upbacks on kickoffs, which is basically conceding the 35 or 40 yard line, but as soon as Janarian Grant did get his hands on one for the Bombers, he, he nearly took it the distance again, so it was probably wise strategy on, on BC's part. But if there's one play where the, the special teams unit really and truly made their contribution to the loss, it would be the blocked punt touchdown deep in their own territory late in the third quarter that put this game out of reach. Mike Riley and the offense didn't fare a whole lot better, and Riley's awful pick midway through the third quarter with BC at midfield proved to be the turning point in this one. This was Groundhog Day again for the offensive line, who got cut up early and often by the Bombers' D-line, as they have for the bulk of the season. These guys really didn't look to be on the same page the entire night, and when you combine that with Riley's tendency to hold on to the ball too long, trying to make something happen rather than checking down to the hot read, you, you don't give yourself much of a chance. The Lions did hit on a few explosives, but those only partially offset the huge number of negative plays that this team made out there. Winnipeg was content to ride Andrew Harris in this one, and why not, as he turned in another good evening on the ground, Winnipeg grading over 60% successful on rushing plays for the third game in a row. The Bombers didn't create much through the air outside of two 50-yard tosses in the first half, but they didn't need to with the success the run was having. Nichols, of course, went down in the second half of this game, and the prognosis is unfortunately not good, and, and he's been moved to the six-game injured list, which leaves BC and Edmonton as the only two teams in the CFL who haven't lost a starting quarterback for at least a game. So this will be Chris Strevler's team for the immediate future, and, and we'll now segue into the future ourselves with a, a look ahead to this week's slate, which will feature these Winnipeg Blue Bombers hitting the road to Edmonton to take on the Eskimos in a battle for top spot in the CFL's Western Division. This line opened Edmonton minus three, which uh, preceded the Nichols injury announcement by about an hour. In the wake of the confirmation that, that Winnipeg would be without their starting quarterback, the market was practically tripping over themselves to get their money on the Eskimos, with that line moving all the way out to seven points uh, by Monday evening. The way the betting market has reacted to Strevler replacing Nichols is certainly at odds with the way a lot of Winnipeg fans are reacting to the circumstances. Nichols has received a surprising amount of criticism lately for a quarterback with a 7-2 record on the season. Uh, he's a guy who's always had consistency issues throughout his career, and when things go bad, they tend to go very bad. 
but by and large we haven't seen that version of Nichols rear its ugly head yet this season. The stat lines haven't been particularly impressive, but Winnipeg's game plan has rightfully been centered around Andrew Harris, and they've spent the majority of the season playing with the lead, so naturally you're not going to be seeing a lot of 300-yard games out of the quarterback in those situations, regardless of who's playing the position. Nichols is also connected on quite a few deep balls while limiting the turnover damage, which was often a sore spot for him in the past. Outside of the game a few weeks ago against Hamilton where he threw three picks, he's protected the football very well this year. Nonetheless, a significant number of fans, or at least a very vocal minority, are, are looking forward to Streveler taking the wheel for the next few weeks here. I like the tools he brings with him to the field. He's a powerful runner with a strong arm, which is in stark contrast to Nichols, who's a pure pocket passer with limited mobility. He's going to give this offense a different look, but I'm not sure he's actually going to make them more effective overall. The ability to make plays with his legs is nice, but in a system that already has an elite all-purpose back in Andrew Harris as the checkdown man on a lot of passing downs, I'm, I'm not sure Strevler's ability to tuck it and run, run it himself is of particular value here. The Bombers have a strong offensive line that's kept their quarterbacks upright this season, so, so again, I can't say Strevler's mobility is going to be some huge boon uh, to the offense where, where you know, Nichols' lack of mobility wasn't really causing any issues, at least up to this point. Strevler tends to see more game action than most backups get since he's always inserted on second or third and short situations to run the quarterback sneak, and Mike O'Shea will often keep him on the field to run the next play. His only significant action this year came in Ottawa back in week four where he relieved an injured Nichols in the second half in, in a game Winnipeg had under control. So he hasn't been asked to pass it a lot this year, but three interceptions on 16 attempts is a little curious, and it's going to be crucial to the Bombers' offense that he's able to continue protecting the, the football as well as Matt Nichols had, despite the latter's previous history of failing to do so. The Winnipeg offense is going to be facing a defense that has got the job done the last two weeks, but has looked a fair bit more vulnerable in doing so than in their, their previous games. Edmonton's continued to get obscene amounts of pressure on opposing quarterbacks, but they weren't great in coverage against the Argonauts in particular when, when that blitz failed to get home. The first time these teams met back in Week 3, Winnipeg's offensive line did an excellent job against the Eskimos' front, at least compared to how most other teams have fared. Where they struggled was in the, in the run game, which Edmonton completely contained outside of one big play. Getting positive yards on first down is of paramount importance against a defense that rates number one in the league at defending the pass on second down. And the Eskimos' defense also grades out at top spot in terms of stuffing the run on first down. It is possible to break off big gainers against them if a, if a guy manages to get to the second level, but that hasn't been a frequent occurrence up to this point. This one could be a bit of a slog on offense for Winnipeg if they're not able to back off the defense early on. The Eskimos have shown that they will gamble that their pressure schemes will get into the backfield quick enough to prevent any damage over the top. And even though the Bombers caught them with a couple of huge plays that ultimately led to their victory in Week 3, I don't expect the defensive strategy to change a great deal in this one, other than increased focus on, on maintaining containment with a, a quarterback who's a, th a threat to take off running. The Bombers' defense has followed a pretty similar path to Edmonton's if, if you can look past the blowing 20-0 lead against the Argonauts from three weeks ago. They haven't let anybody impose their will along the ground, although the group of opposing running backs they've faced hasn't been very strong. To give credit where it's due, Eskimos running back CJ Gable has turned in a couple of very nice efforts in recent weeks after largely struggling through the first third of the season. 
Be mindful of the competition, though, with those two games coming against Ottawa and Toronto. Edmonton suffered another blow on the offensive line last week with left tackle Tommy Drahim joining Matt O'Donnell and Sir Vincent Rogers on the sixth game. This line has done a fantastic job this season, seemingly unfazed by the injuries to key players, but they're going to be on their third string left tackle now, and, and you've got to think there might be a breaking point eventually. Winnipeg's defensive line is not a unit you want to be going up against shorthanded, and if there's a, an area of the game where, where the offensive line might uh, start to bend a little, this, this would be a good candidate. Winnipeg's been getting a lot of big plays in their secondary, specifically from Chandler Fenner and Marcus Sales, but Richie Hall's unit has also been giving up some chunks through the air at a higher rate than I'm sure he'd like to see. If Trevor Harris has time in the pocket, he's going to find somebody, be it Greg Ellingson, Ricky Collins, or DeVaris Daniels, so the ability of that front to penetrate the backfield and potentially cause Harris issues that he hasn't had to deal with yet this season is, is going to play a big role in how things unfold offensively for the Eskimos. The opening line of three or three and a half was, was right where I had this game pegged. I'm not surprised Edmonton took the early money. Anytime somebody announces that their starting quarterback is out, there's the natural tendency to jump on the other side. But I'm surprised that this has made it all the way out to seven points so quickly. If this is just a case of offenses and defenses going head-to-head, -head, I think Streveler in his first start of the year is probably a big enough question mark that a, a full touchdown is justifiable. But something that can't be overlooked is the opposite end of the spectrum these teams sit at when it comes to special teams. The Bombers already had an embarrassment of riches when it came to the return game, with Lucky Whitehead and Charles Nelson both at their disposal. And so what do they do when Nelson goes down injured? Eh, well, they bring in a guy who looks even more dangerous in the form of Janarian Grant, who brought two kicks to the house in his season debut against Calgary two weeks ago. We already saw the respect BC afforded him, keeping the ball out of his hands as much as possible. Edmonton would be wise to do the same, but the trade-off is uh, you know, giving away field position to the opposing offense. For their part, Edmonton's return unit has, has at least shown a pulse the last two games, with Christian Jones providing some decent runbacks. But you still have to give the Bombers a very clear edge in this department, and that expense extends to the field goal teams as well. Justin Medlock has hit 16 of his last 18 attempts, several of those from beyond 50 yards, so that further shortens the field for the Winnipeg offense, at least in terms of getting into scoring range. On the other side, Sean White has struggled this year with a few misses inside of 45, and he has the added burden of handling punts and kickoffs right now with Hugh O'Neill sidelined. That's enough for me to be pretty concerned about laying a full touchdown or, or close to it to back Edmonton here. Once you get up to a full major spread, you, you just don't have much margin for error against a good football team, and, and with the special teams battle probably lost by Edmonton before either team is off the bus, I'd be leaning in uh, pretty strongly towards Winnipeg unless this number trickles back down into that field goal range as, as opposed to touchdown range. The total has been bet down slightly, now sitting at 46.5. I'll go back to the same line of thinking from when the Eskimos played the Stampeders earlier in the month, and, and that's that it gets pretty difficult to bet an under at a number this low with two competent football teams on the field, even if both defenses are strong. These teams put 49 on the board back in week 3 in a game where Edmonton kicked a bunch of short field goals. So factor in that the Eskimos return game is in better shape now than it was then, and of course you'll either have Grant returning kicks or the Eskimo kick team conceding yards to avoid him on the Bombers' side, and that should provide these offenses with some good starting field position throughout the night. 
The Saturday doubleheader starts off in Regina, with the Rough Riders coming in off a bye week, and they have not actually lost a football game since the first week of July, as winners of four straight. They will play host to the Ottawa Red Blacks, now at 3-6 and six on the season, and this line presently sits at minus 10 in favor of the home side, with an over-under of 49. The last time these clubs met each other was back in Week 2, in what was a wild shootout in Ottawa, with the Red Blacks prevailing 44-41. However, these teams have gone in opposite directions since that meeting, and Ottawa has now shifted play-calling duties over to the old veteran Joe Pow Pow, who was once upon a time the head coach of the old Ottawa Renegades back in the early years of this century. This was a move that uh, hardly could have been predicted early in the season, with Winston October in this offense flying out of the chute with 76 points in their first two games. But when you go uh, on to basically score that same amount of offensive points in your next seven... The pitchforks come out, and this offense remains under considerable pressure to start showing some signs of life as the season starts to slip away on them. How much of an effect Pow Pow calling plays is going to have is really anybody's guess. He hasn't been a head coach or offensive coordinator in the CFL since 2006, spending most of the intervening years uh, between then and now coaching Canadian University Bowl. But he's been around Canadian football for over 40 years, so safe to say he's seen pretty much everything by now. As a former quarterback, I, I think the hope has to be that he can coach up Dominic Davis and, and maybe see things through the quarterback's eyes a little more than Winston October could, seeing as he was a former kick returner who had a pretty limited role in the offense for most of his playing career. The biggest favor this Red Blocks offense could do themselves is getting some positive production on first downs and not leave themselves in so many known passing situations. 62% of their second down snaps last week saw them needing at least 8 yards to gain, and in fact, they didn't run the ball a single time on second down. A team with a, without a lot of dynamic playmakers is, is not going to be converting second and longs with any regularity against a defense the caliber of Saskatchewan's if, if they can drop seven or eight guys into coverage. So they've got to keep more of the playbook open by throwing less incompletions on first down. R.J. Harris did get back into the lineup last week after being on the shelf for a month. That's a guy that will be leaned on in this receiving core uh, that again struggled to make big big plays against Hamilton. I haven't been able to find any word on running back John Crockett's availability for this game, other than that he remains on the one-game injured list for now. But Devontae Dedman is definitely out, and that's a case of when it rains it pours. But both those guys were about the only positive things the Red Blacks had going for them in recent weeks, and losing both of them in that game against Edmonton a couple weeks back was brutal injury luck. Ottawa didn't really use Moses Madu all that much against the Tiger Cats, and, and I think they're going to need to use him a lot more in this game, if for no other reason than keeping the Riders' D-line from just pinning their ears back. It sounds like Micah Johnson is still a little ways away from being back on the line for Saskatchewan, but A.C. Leonard is, is at least back at practice this week and, and is on the roster, so it appears there's a good chance he'll suit up. Either way, you know, worth noting that neither of those guys were in the lineup when Saskatchewan ran back two forced fumbles against Montreal the last time they were on the field, so this isn't a defensive line lacking for depth. Opponent runs are only grading 37% successful against this front the last three games, but if nothing else, Ottawa had been willing to chip away with short runs earlier in the season even if they weren't generating significant yardage, and the passing game was more effective under those circumstances. Crockett's ability to find the second level is something they're missing, but they need to hope Madu is able to wear out this defense a little bit and open up some space underneath for the passing game. That particular strategy is something the Riders have employed to great effect so far this year, and there's no reason to think William Powell will not feature prominently in the game plan on Saturday. 
Now, it's not something often said about a team riding a four-game winning streak, but Saskatchewan's offense hasn't actually found the end zone since Cody Fajardo ran in the winning score against Hamilton three weeks back, thanks to the bye week combined with the CFL's infamous decision to abandon the game against Montreal two weeks ago, a game in which Saskatchewan won on the strength of two defensive touchdowns and Mother Nature's timely intervention. Kidding aside, Saskatchewan's offense hasn't been particularly effective in their last two games. The Ottawa defense has hung in there pretty well, still fighting the injury bug, with Corey Tindall, the latest defensive back, to find himself on the injured list. The last game between these teams was more or less Cody Fajardo's breakout performance, despite the loss. I don't think we see another 40-point outing, but the Red Blacks are still giving up too many big plays through the air, and this receiving core presents its challenges in terms of having so many different guys who can step up and make a play when called upon. I think the bye week helps the riders here. We know Shaq Evans was playing a bit dinged up two weeks ago. Presumably he's back to 100% now. Fajardo had his ankle heavily taped up in the second half of that Hamilton game. You know, two weeks off should help that. We saw this number open 10.5. Not a lot of movement happening there as it remains at 10 flat. Ottawa is a bit of a peculiar case. They've gone out on the road four times previous this season as heavy dogs, and they've easily covered three of those numbers with two outright wins and a near miss in Edmonton. The only spread loss was the blowout in Winnipeg, and that was with Jonathan Jennings at quarterback. So history says this is a team that will show up on the road and give you a game. Lewis Ward, who finally missed a field goal last week, being so dependable has no doubt helped them hang around in these games, but the flip side of that is that the, the Red Blacks are outperforming a lot of their underlying numbers in, in terms of what the scoreboard says. Turnover luck has been firmly on their side in recent weeks, and at some point the other shoe ends up dropping. Laying double digits on Saskatchewan is tough here. You're looking at a scenario where you probably need them to score 30 to cover. It's somewhat unlikely that their offense is able to get that themselves, so you're probably banking on a big play on defense or special teams if the Riders are, are going to take care of business for you. Ottawa is one of two special teams units not to give up a return touchdown this season, but Saskatchewan has been the best team in the league on kickoff returns specifically, so have a bit of a strength versus strength uh, matchup in that department. Dominic Davis has been turnover prone. We know Saskatchewan's secondary likes to ball hawk, so that's a definite possibility, but still tough to actually depend on it occurring. Ottawa, as discussed, has been kind to their backers as underdogs, but the, the market is clearly less trusting and has been unwilling to dive in headfirst on what certainly appears to be too large a number on the surface. So a bit of a cop-out here, but I, I just don't see value on either side of this number right now, and, and I think I'd need to see a couple points of movement either way before backing one side or the other. Total of 49 looks pretty tight as well, although despite the fireworks these teams provided in their Week 2 matchup, I'd be leaning towards the under. The forecast in Regina is calling for rain on Saturday, and a wet ball obviously causes issues in the passing game, and the potential of a prairie wind rolling through to disrupt offenses is always a possibility as well. If the forecast holds, and it is indeed in clement weather as kickoff approaches, this will probably drop a couple of points on game day, so uh, potential to grab yourself a, a point or two if, if you like the under right now. Two teams that saw each other two weeks ago provide the nightcap of the doubleheader as the east-leading Hamilton Tiger Cats travel to the west coast to take on the basement-dwelling BC Lions. This line opened minus 4.5 for Hamilton, bounced down to a field goal, and seems to have now settled in at 3.5. 
While the total has seen some pretty heavy under auction, pushing this number from a 50.5 open uh, down a full field goal to 47.5, I'm not going to lie, BC is going to be a tough team to talk about in the second half of the season. At 1-8 and eight and 4 games back of the 4th place Calgary Stampeders in the West, their season is clearly on life support and things don't appear to be trending in the right direction. Now that said, if the Lions could have only managed to hold on to a pair of large 4th quarter leads against Calgary in Week 3 and of course against these same Tiger Cats a couple weeks ago, things would look a whole lot different right now. You can never say never in this league, but when the under on a team's preseason win total cashes in August, it's, uh, it's not a good situation. There's two ways to look at this three and a half number. On one hand, BC went into Hamilton as nearly two touchdown dogs recently and would have been walking out of Tim Hortons field with a win if their kick coverage team could have stopped a tackling dummy or their defense didn't buckle yet again in the dying minutes of a football game. The other side of that coin is, what reason do we really have to think that the fourth quarter of that game won't just roll over into this one? The Lions fading in the second half of games is no secret. That This has actually been a bit of a macro trend as well. There's two instances this year of BC playing the same opponent in short succession, and both times they got absolutely killed at home in the second game after bad second halves in the first meeting. I don't have the impression that Devon Claybrooks is on the hot seat quite yet, but the, the lack of in-game adjustments and the blown leads aren't a good look for this coaching staff, and recent history would certainly indicate that Hamilton comes out of the gate strong and the Lions don't have an answer for it on their own sideline. The other thing to be mindful of, and it's difficult to quantify, but at some point the guys on this Lions roster start to check out mentally as the losses mount and, and this becomes a lost season. Guys talk about pride and treating every game the same and all that when a microphone is put in front of them, and, and I don't doubt that a lot of that is sincere. And nobody wants to get embarrassed out on the field on, on game day, um, but it's simply human nature that some of the small details in preparation throughout the week start to slip as the games become meaningless. Maybe that only manifests itself in the form of a procedure call here or a bad substitution there, but it all adds up eventually, and that's a locker room with no lack of strong personalities, so things could potentially get interesting off the field for this club, barring a spectacular second-half turnaround. From the perspective of the Tiger Cats, traveling across the country is never ideal, and you can add in that this game won't start until 10pm Hamilton time. Weird things tend to happen at BC Place late at night, and you don't need to look any further than Hamilton's visit to the West Coast last year for proof of that. But if you can look past the spot, the, the numbers would certainly suggest that the Tiger Cats ought to win this football game, provided they don't shoot themselves in the foot. Dane Evans has settled into the starting role now, and if he can avoid a repeat of the two bad picks he threw last week, things are starting to come together pretty nicely for the Tiger Cats' offense now. Cameron Marshall is healthy and back in game shape, and, and that's really given a boost to the run game that they lacked in the, the weeks immediately following Sean Thomas Erlington's injury. Raylan Addison is coming into his own as a dynamic playmaker as well, uh, which isn't surprising, as the potential for that uh, had been evident since he, he found his way into the lineup last season. And it seems pretty much every time he gets his hands on the ball, Frankie Williams is making something big happen on a kick return. The Lions have handed their opponents better starting field position off of kickoffs than anyone else in the league this year, and Williams might be the last guy you want to face in that situation, so expect some shorter fields for Dane Evans on Saturday night. On the defensive side, it's a mild concern that BC moved the ball so effectively against Hamilton two weeks ago. 
But when you break things down, the Lions have come out and moved the ball well against a lot of teams in the opening 30 minutes of football games this year before fizzling out. And that was largely the case in that game two weeks ago, as the Lions only scored seven points over the final 22 minutes. No Delvin Bro in the secondary game this week for the Cats, but they've been getting big plays out of the other guys back there this year, so I'm not sure that's quite as big a loss uh, as it may look like on paper. They've been very up and down against the run, and John White had a really nice game against them two weeks ago, but uh, the fact is BC, in in spite of grading no worse than 54% successful along the ground in five of their last six games, likes to air it out. Given how bad the pass protection has been for the Lions this year, calling for the pass at a 65% clip on situation-neutral plays is certainly questionable. And I don't think you can really blame a whole lot of that on score effects either, because BC has actually led or been within a single score a surprisingly high amount of time for a, for a 1-8 team. And I guess where I'm going with that is, you know, laying back and letting the Lions shoot themselves in the foot is, is always an option for a defense as well. And it uh, wouldn't be surprising to see that happen again this Saturday. The three and a half to four and a half range is about where I figured this line would open, but the market immediately backing BC at that number definitely caught me off guard. I figured this would be moving in the opposite direction to what it did. I think the game two weeks ago probably has a lot to do with that, but I think BC's MO of looking good in the first 30 minutes of a game play against the team before proceeding to look awful in the next 90 is getting overlooked a little bit. I like Hamilton to come away with the win here. Uh, those weirdness slash travel slash late night games for an Eastern team concerns are admittedly present. And three with a hook is the one number likely to break your heart in this league. I wouldn't generally recommend buying a point on an alternate line in a CFL game as three is really the only key number in Canadian football, unlike the American version, which has several but this is that rare case where the, the hook could sink you, so if, if you can find three even at minus 120 or better and it helps you sleep at night, eh, fill your boots on that one. The total is another area where the market has admittedly surprised me betting so strongly towards the under despite 71 points these teams combined for last time. I was of the belief that the opening number of 50.5 was appropriate with a full field goal now hacked off. I would be having a pretty serious look at the over. The reservation is obviously the possibility of BC producing a complete dud on offense, but I think the Tiger Cats will hold up their end of the bargain in the scoring department, especially with Cam Marshall finding his groove and Williams giving them so much on returns. So the Hamilton team total, which projects out to be about 25.5, might be something to consider as well when game day rolls around. We'll move from the West Coast way across the country to the East Coast, the city of Moncton, New Brunswick specifically, which will play host to the Argonauts and the Alouettes on Sunday in another version of Touchdown Atlantic. Montreal has hovered around minus six favorites for this one with a robust total set at 55 points. The Owls come into this game flying high after their big comeback win on the road in Calgary last week. While the Argos situation is not so rosy at the moment, with James Wilder evidently not on the same page as the coaching staff, or the managerial staff, and those last two entities potentially not on the same page with each other either, based on some interesting comments made by the head coach earlier this week. When asked whether or not he expected Wilder to remain an Argonaut through the end of the season, head coach Chamberlain stated that he wasn't sure that he himself would be an Argonaut at the end of the season. I admire his honesty. 
A combination of an extremely disappointing 1-7 record and having Jim Pop as your boss would probably have any sane man questioning his job security. As for Wilder, he is going to play this week, and it's still not 100% clear what exactly transpired behind closed doors. Uh, the gist of it sounds like Wilder was potentially getting demoted to special teams for last week's game, and he was eventually made a healthy scratch after not embracing the situation, but uh, allegedly everyone is now on the same page. Doesn't sound to me like Wilder is long for the Argonauts, and this is proving to be a very disappointing end to something that looks so promising in the second half of the 2017 season. Wilder was looking like the American Andrew Harris during that first great half season he had in this league, but he's looked anything but the part since. I think he's been underutilized and not exactly put in a situation to succeed so far this year, but at the same time he's shown very little in the limited opportunities he has had. I think there's enough talent there that Wilder is worth a shot for a team that needs a boost in their run game and figures he might bounce back in a new environment. As for potential landing spots, Calgary is really the only place that makes sense at this exact moment, with Romar Morris sadly done for the season again after injuring his other Achilles and Kadeem Carey still on the limp. Everyone else seems pretty contented with their personnel, but an injury is only one play away, so that could change in a hurry. Brandon Burks and Chris Rainey split the carries for the Argos last week and did a good enough job of it that I probably wouldn't be clamoring to put Wilder back in there, but again I'm left wondering why Burks didn't see more of the ball. This guy's been good for over 7 yards per carry in 3 of the 4 games where he's been given at least 5 attempts, and he's caught 10 balls for over 100 yards as well as a running back. Jacques Chapdelaine, you know, needs to be getting him more than six or seven touches per game, especially if he wants to have success against an Alouette's defense that's looking good but beatable right now. This is a defense that has really come a long way since the first three weeks of the season. Last week was a little bit of a hiccup, getting burned for two huge touchdown plays in the fourth quarter and then giving up a touchdown drive in the first overtime session. They dug in and shut the door in the second overtime, though, and... For the first three quarters of this game, they kept the Stampeders contained, so I wouldn't say there's any cause for concern here, but Toronto, as they demonstrated against both Winnipeg and Edmonton, is fully capable of picking up chunks of yardage through the air anytime McLeod Bethel-Thompson isn't getting sacked or throwing picks, so they're going to have their work cut out for them. They're still not getting a lot of pressure on opposing quarterbacks, and, and this is hurting them a bit on first downs. The Alouettes have given up 60% opposition success rate on first down passing attempts, and teams do appear to have keyed in on this a little bit, as, as the Owls have been passed against the highest percentage of snaps on first down as well. The Argos love to pass on first down as it is, and there's no reason to think uh, you know the Owls' defense will discourage that, so expect Toronto to come out slinging the rock through the air on Sunday. If Toronto will be sending a Walker, Green, Edwards, and eh, heck, even throw Jimmy Ralph's name in there at, at receiver to go against Evans and Campbell, uh, now a little lighter in the pocketbook after being fined for his role in the pregame dust-up in Calgary last week. So we should be in for a good battle between some big names when Toronto is out there on offense. One injury note, Al's safety Taylor Loeffler is out with a bad knee, so there will be a little bit of shifting going on in the defensive backfield. On the, on the Montreal offensive side, they dealt with the Stanback injury fairly well in Calgary, I thought. Jeremiah Johnson is a little more east-west than Stanback is, but he filled in just fine, and Montreal stuck to their trend of keeping themselves out of second and long, which the Stampeders were only able to force 11 times in a, an overtime game where the Owls had over 40 sets of downs. Having Devere Posey back in the lineup was a big boost to the passing game, as he hauled in nearly 200 yards worth of receptions last week 
Well, Eugene Lewis also got himself over the century mark, and you have to think one or both of these guys could be poised for another big outing against an Argos secondary that was just victimized repeatedly by Greg Ellingson. Montreal is now 4-1 in games where Vernon Adams has played the full 60 minutes, and he's run 27 pass plays for 10 or more yards in his last two full games against Edmonton and Calgary defenses, which is not a number to take lightly. The way the schedule is lined up so far, the significant majority of Adams' game time has come against the Eskimos, Tiger Cats, or Stampeder defenses. Toronto has simply not been nearly at the level of, of those teams defensively this season, and you have to think Adams is a pretty solid bet to keep things rolling in this one. This game, as mentioned, is being played in Moncton, though it is considered an Argonauts home game, and, and that's the way it lists on uh, you know scoreboards and you know gambling apps and whatnot, uh, which might throw off the more casual better, so, so be aware of that. Toronto having to travel for what counts as one of their nine home dates is obviously a disadvantage and probably worth a point or two on the betting line compared to a game at BMO Field. There's a small concern for me that Montreal could potentially have a bit of a letdown after a big emotional win on the road last week, but I think as long as they avoid that, this is a game they should certainly have the upper hand in. Both these teams have had uh, very difficult schedules through the first half of the season, but Montreal has gotten the better of those good teams any time Adams has been healthy, while the same cannot be said for Toronto, whose season is pretty much on the line in this one. Assuming the game doesn't end in a tie, the, the Argos are either going to be two wins back of a playoff spot or four. If it's the latter, eh, it's pretty much game over, so you'd certainly hope they come through with a, an all-hands-on-deck type of effort, but... There just doesn't seem to be the cohesion out on the field right now or, or between this coaching staff and their players, and, and there's no guarantees that the desperate team comes out and plays any harder or more focused. And with this team in particular right now, I, I have limited confidence that we'll see much of that on Sunday. Montreal is available at minus 5.5 if you do some line shopping, and, and at less than a touchdown, I, I think they're the more attractive side in this one. With the number of low-scoring games we've witnessed throughout the year, it would be easy to instinctively hammer the under on the 55 total, but these teams have both passed the ball quite successfully in recent weeks, besides the times the Owls have had to run Pipkin or Schiltz out there at quarterback, so that's not actually such a clear play. The long-term forecast in Moncton is looking pretty good, uh, but still a few days out, so something to monitor there. There's definitely potential to eclipse the 80 combined pass attempt mark between these two offenses, so if the sun is shining and the wind is calm, this game might actually be worth a, worth a look at the over when game day rolls around. That will conclude our tour around the league for this week, uh, so the last bit of business to address is the best bet, and, and for that I think we'll head to the west coast and put our trust in the visiting Hamilton Tiger Cats to cover the 3.5 for us against the beleaguered BC Lions, and cross our fingers that the ghost of June Jones is not whispering in the ear of Orlando Steinauer if the Tiger Cats have an appropriately sized lead late in the fourth quarter. Okay, that will wrap things up for this edition of Third Down Gamble. Thanks to everyone for your listens, your likes, and your feedback. And remember, you can get in touch anytime by following me on Twitter, at KDrive88, or leaving a comment at FirstLinePicks.com. Have a great weekend, folks, and hopefully the beginning of the second half of the football season is a profitable one for you. Best of luck. Bye for now.